from the ACLU. This is At Liberty. I'm Vanessa Handy, the producer of this podcast and your host for this episode. On August 10th, 2009, the North Carolina legislature passed the Racial Justice Act, or RJA, a first-of-its-kind law that allows people on death row to challenge their sentences if they could show race played a factor at the time of their trial. This historic legislation allowed us at the ACLU to successfully bring claims on behalf of four people back in 2012, getting their sentences changed to life without parole. This momentum was short-lived because a year later, the North Carolina Supreme Court repealed the RJA. Then, in 2020, the court ruled that those who had already filed their cases under the RJA were entitled to move forward despite the repeal. The same year the RJA was passed, Hassan Bakot was sentenced to death in a Johnston County courtroom. As a Black man in a deeply segregated county with a history of racial terror, Bakot's fate was all but sealed well before the jury issued his death sentence. Now, more than a decade after the law was passed, he will be the first to challenge his death penalty sentence under the RJA since 2020. Beginning February 26th, Bacote's team will argue that race not only played an impermissible role in this case, but in all capital cases in Johnston County and across the state of North Carolina. The success of this case could determine our future ability to reverse more sentences and end the death penalty in the state. Joining us today to discuss Hassan Bacote's landmark hearing and our ongoing work to fight against the death penalty is Henderson Hill, Senior Counsel for the ACLU's Capital Punishment Project. Henderson, welcome to At Liberty, and thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Vanessa. It's good to be with you. Thank you. So we're going to be talking about the Racial Justice Act, which the North Carolina legislature passed in 2009. And it was a historic piece of legislation intended to reform racial discrimination in the state's death penalty cases. This law is also the basis of the hearing we're going to be discussing today. And since it's such a pivotal part of this conversation, I'm wondering if you could start by explaining how the RJA got passed and what it does. There's a bit of history that's critical to the passing of the RJA. In the years between 2007 and 2009, three Black men who had been convicted and sentenced to death and served a decade or more each on uh, on those convictions were exonerated. They were proved innocent of the crime for which they were convicted and for which they received a death sentence. One of those clients was an ACLU client. Bo Jones. And so we had this special motivation uh, to pass this act for two reasons. One is that it's clear that if you're Black, you're more likely to be subjected to the death penalty, that is, prosecuted for the death penalty. And also, if you're Black, prosecutors are more likely to exclude, as prospective jurors, persons from your community, the history of exclusion of black citizens from the jury box dates back more than 100 years. In fact, immediately after the Civil War. So the urgent need for this kind of legislation was apparent. And in North Carolina, in 2009, uh, we finally had the political leverage to pass it. It's good to know that our 
history and our ACLU clients are so embedded in the history of getting this act passed. So in 2012, moving kind of further in this timeline, the ACLU Capital Punishment Project and other civil rights organizations brought the first successful claims under the RJA on behalf of four people, Marcus Robinson, Tillman Golfin, Christina Walters, and Quintel Augustine. In all four of their cases, a judge determined that racial discrimination did, in fact, play a role in their cases, and they were resentenced to life without parole, which was a huge success. But just a year later, the North Carolina Supreme Court reversed the trial judge's findings, and in backlash to the case's success, the state legislature repealed the Racial Justice Act. So can you walk us through what went on in this two-year period where we have the success and then this law gets repealed? I mean, what was, what was the argument for reversing these decisions and repealing the RJA? Well, I think looking at the political calendar would shed a lot more light than looking at jurisprudence. You'll recall in 2008, 2009, we had the election of the first African-American president of the United States. Of course. There was a large political turnout during that election. Uh, the Democratic Party, frankly, had majorities uh, in, in the General Assembly. And we had two primary objectives. One was uh, the Racial Justice Act. The other was the exception of uh, serious mentally ill for the death penalty. Well, the Black Caucus made the Racial Justice Act a priority. It was passed. And you, as you noted, we had um, uh, four cases that went to litigation. Uh, those cases went to litigation after an extraordinary series of studies by Michigan State University researchers that examined cases from 1990 to 2010, every capital case, every jury selection, every juror questionnaire. And as a result of uh, those statistical studies, it was clear that black jurors, prospective jurors, were being excluded at a rate at least two times that of white jurors, sometimes as high as three or three and a half times as frequently. Well, that was confirmed as a result of these statistical studies. When you look at the election of 2010, and you saw that you know, much of the black and minority population didn't show up, there was a reversal of political fortunes, uh, very conservative politicians uh, were swept into office at the General Assembly, and one of their priorities was reversal or repeal of the, of the Racial Justice Act. Curiously, when the Fourth Circuit had an opportunity to review the effort to repeal the Racial Justice Act, that same session of the General Assembly was described as acting with surgical precision to change laws to disenfranchise or disempower the black community. That quote was actually made in a, in a voting rights context, but it was referring to the same session of the General Assembly. And we could see from the decision in the voter suppression context, as well as in the Racial Justice Act, that there, that there was this agenda, and the agenda was hostile to the black community. I appreciate you adding that context. I think having the backdrop of an election and the political landscape is really important because I think that in the instance of 
actions from state legislatures, it can be hard to remember that no actions from the state legislature are removed from our nationwide political scene. And I think that 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 speaks to what happened here. So in the years that followed the repeal, what became of the claims people had filed following the passing of the RJA? Was any progress still able to be made in challenging people's death sentence after the fact? Well, there was uh, a series of appellate challenges. Uh, I believe more than 140 petitions had been filed. And so those were basically being held in abeyance at the trial court level until the the appeals and the litigation over the four cases that had been successfully uh, litigated in Cumberland County. And in 2020, the state Supreme Court looked at the decision below, found that enforcing the repeal of the Racial Justice Act against people who had already filed petitions under the act violated the state's ex post facto law. You can't undo, take away rights that had already been uh, provided. And so uh, finding that constitutional violation, the Supreme Court said those cases, those petitions that have been held in abeyance, they need to be resolved. And so in 2020, uh, those 130 cases were now prime uh, for trial court resolution. And the parties agreed that it made sense that these, these were some colossal issues at stake. There was the enormous uh, amount of data and the sophisticated research uh, and statistical studies that went into the analysis of those data, uh, of, the, of that data. It just didn't make sense to have 130 of these cases rush into various trial court levels and have it litigated in that sort of uh, helter-skelter fashion. So there was this broad general agreement that, that there ought to be a lead case uh, that you can litigate under the act, you could put all the uh, complex uh, evidence together and get a ruling and have that ruling taken up to the higher court and establish the principles that would govern the uh, the 130-odd cases. And so the first case to enter that pipeline was the case of Hassan Bacot here in Johnson County. And three years later, <laughs> after much pretrial litigation, we're now poised at the very precipice. We're poised uh, at the very beginning of that, of, of that hearing. It's scheduled now for February 26th. Right. And this is the perfect segue um, to talk about the hearing itself and the case of Hassan Bakot. Like you said, in 2020, the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled that those who had already filed their cases under the RJA were entitled to move forward. And now, North Carolina versus Hassan Bacot will be the first RJA case heard since 2020 in Johnston County Superior Court. I want to know about Hassan Bacot before we start talking about the hearing and what it will entail. In this hearing, Mr. Bacot and, and his team will test this law and really force those watching the hearing to grapple with this stark reality that race does play an outsized role in the administration of the death penalty. Can you take us back and introduce us to Hassan Bakot, his case, and his story? 
Hassan Bakot, back at the time of the crime, this is 2007, was a 20-year-old uh, young black man uh, who had a poignant and sad uh, history, childhood history of abject poverty, uh, familial abandonment. He was in the foster care system. The foster care system did this young man no favors. He was separated from his brother uh, and placed in this home and that home almost randomly from age six to about age 13. At age 13, he was uh, placed in the home of Clarice Bryant, uh, her and her two uh, sons. He stayed in that home for five years there and created a real family-like attitude, circumstance, uh, loving relationship with Miss Bryant, with her two sons. Unfortunately, he aged out at 18. And while she welcomed him uh, at the home on visits, uh, the system just, <laughs> he was a square peg in a round hole. It just didn't fit. And unfortunately, he fell into really bad associations, uh, placed him uh, in an environment where drugs were used and young folks were participating in criminal behaviors. And he, he joined drug use and those criminal behaviors. Uh, sadly, uh, this crime occurred when he and two other young men uh, went into a, a mobile home park in in uh, Selma, a community there in Johnson County, uh, for the purpose of some kind of illegal transaction, likely a drug transaction. There were uh, two guns produced. Uh, the mobile home was crowded, jam-packed. There was a sudden movement, a single shot was fired, and tragically, an 18-year-old black boy, black man, young man, was killed. Uh, there's no evidence, no suggestion, even by the state, that there was an intent to kill. So from the very processing of the crime scene to the decision to seek uh, capital prosecution, uh, there's a clear demonstration that Black lives just simply didn't matter. Thank you for running us through that. And I think it's very important that you began with talking about Mr. Bacote's background because you mentioned neglect and unsafe foster care conditions. This is not uncommon to see in the cases of Black defendants, especially those who are sentenced to the death penalty. These are systemic failures that are a major part of their environment growing up. These factors are often reasons why juries choose life over death in sentencing. But for Hassan Bakot and many other um, Black men, Black individuals in the court system, and especially in Johnston County, they're shown no remorse. I mean, in Johnston County and in this courtroom um, that Hassan Bakot's trial took place in, the judge and every lawyer was white. Um, this is a courtroom where the prosecutor struck qualified Black jurors at three times the rate of their white counterparts, which created a heavily white jury from a diverse jury pool. Um, and I think that this is all very useful context to understand how the court came to the decision in Mr. Bacote's case. I also want to note that 
Johnson County has a deep, deep history of segregation and racial terror. It was a hotspot for KKK activity. And you have had a long career championing civil rights and fighting against death penalty in North Carolina. I'm wondering if you can expand on how history of a place like Johnston County um, and the histories of racial injustice in North Carolina reflect in the decisions made by juries, judges, and courts as a whole. It's really extraordinary that in a case where there's no evidence of premeditation, no evidence of an intent to kill, that you would seek the highest, harshest punishment. That's unusual anywhere in the country. In in North Carolina, I think there, at one at the time of the filing of the MAR, there were 150 people on the row. Only seven cases had been prosecuted where uh, there was no intent to kill. And, and guess what? They were all people of color. Right. In Johnson County, every black person who's been brought to trial on capital charges have gotten a capital sentence. You know, that doesn't happen by accident. And you, you note the history of this county. I mean, that attitude that was broadcast very loudly on the billboards also is, uh, reflects a theme, a culture that describes accurately the, the county's history. It, it's one that has uh, suppressed uh, the vote uh, and in much the same way that we look at two important civic civil rights, the vote and jury service. Well, uh, the ways to dilute the black vote are manifold. One of them is at-large elections. And Johnson County is, is famous for at-large elections. In the history of the county, there have never been a black person elected to countywide office. All of the races are at-large races. That sort of makes it very, very difficult to get black representation on the county offices. Uh, if you look at school desegregation, Brown versus Board of Education decided in 1954, uh, Johnson County, like much of North Carolina, uh, did not act with all deliberate speed. The decision was in 1954. Uh, there wasn't even an effort to de desegregate until 1970. Uh, it didn't be, uh, reach any measure of success until 1970. And that hostility to the interests of, black, uh, of the Black community has not really changed uh, tremendously over the years. Uh, in, in the last couple of three years, much attention has been placed on critical race theory and the hostility towards that, when in fact what they're talking about is simply Black history. What a sad response that is, but it is so very descriptive of the county. It's all connected, absolutely. And I think that you really hit the nail on the head talking about how this hostility towards critical race theory or to confronting um, the county's racist history is the hostility against the Black community and the perpetuation of racial oppression, the reason that this is still able to happen um, is because it's disproportionately affecting the Black community. And we know this, but I think that it's very important to name it. Well, I think what, and Vanessa, that's so, so true, so accurate. But let me talk something about what's so very special about this Racial Justice Act litigation that, that we're doing. It has allowed us to, to seek discovery of 
every capital prosecution from uh, 1980 forward. And by discovery, I mean getting the transcripts for each one of those trials, the jury summons, jury questionnaires, and, and, and get this, the handwritten notes of prosecutors. And it's in those handwritten notes of prosecutors that we see some of the thinking where it is so clear that they were obsessed on race. This has been a problem uh, in the country, but most especially in North Carolina for decades and decades. I want to move to this hearing that's coming up on February 26th. In less than a week, the trial court is going to begin to hear evidence and testimonies in this case. And this is not just about cases in Johnston County. This is about the state of North Carolina as a whole. And you mentioned that back in 2020, when the North Carolina Supreme Court was deciding how to proceed with this claims made under the RJA after it was repealed, that a decision was made that there needed to be a leading case. And that is Mr. Bacote's case. I'm wondering, why do you think this case specifically has risen to such pertinence um, compared to other claims? Well, one reason is uh, both myself and uh, Cassie Stubbs, the director of the Capital Punishment Project, represented Mr. Bacote, you know, 10 years ago when the petition was first filed. And so because we were his counsel uh, and we as an institutional litigator had the resources to adequately uh, investigate uh, the claim, uh, it, it made sense for one of our cases uh, to, to be the lead case. Uh, and because the Center for Death Penalty Litigation, also an important um, actor in the state, was aligned and had uh, previously represented uh, Mr. Bacote, it seemed very natural. That makes a lot of sense. So with this being the leading case and with the hearing upcoming, I want to talk about what we might hear in the actual hearing itself and what evidence is going to be presented because we're expected to hear a trove of evidence that shows racial discrimination in death penalty sentences. But I'm wondering, how has this evidence been collected? What research has been done? And what factors do you expect the evidence presented in this hearing to draw upon? We're excited that the evidence will fall perhaps into three different buckets. One is a purely statistical uh, presentation. So we've got uh, Professor Barbara O'Brien from the Michigan State University, who was one of two lead investigators who directed the, the investigation of the cases between 1990 and 2010. Uh, and so she will talk about the methodology, about the data collection instruments. She will testify about both of that. Uh, both of those approaches. Uh, uh, Professor Richard Smith from UNC uh, did a, uh, used the same database, but used different um, analytical tools, mathematical tools to process the information. His, his uh, results were very consistent with those of, of Dr. O'Brien, Professor O'Brien. 
the government has listed one expert witness in this litigation. This professor, I believe, from uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, uh, Fan Lee, uh, is going to be talking about the issue of, uh, of causality. And she has a theory, a, a, a statistical approach that values that focuses on causality. She challenges the approach that MSU does, but even in her challenge, uh, her study of the same uh, data indicates that there was an undue racial effect uh, demonstrated through the questioning. Uh, so we have uh, three different approaches, statistical approaches. The one consistency about all three is that there's an undue racial impact in the questioning. There's going to be a social scientist testify from Tufts University, Sam Summers, who has spent a lot of time talking about the impact of having uh, a representative jury. What Summer, Professor Summers will testify about is what the impact is of having all white or nearly all white jurors. And, you know, what it is in the deliberative process, what difference it makes when you have a person of color involved in that uh, deliberative process. And then we've got three history uh, experts. Uh, we have uh, Seth Koch, who literally wrote the book on the death penalty in North Carolina. Professor Koch will go through the state's history of the use of the death penalty and how it is really a direct legacy of the state's history of racial terrorism that, that started from the period of Reconstruction through the period of, of, of lynching at the, early, at the turn of the century. And then a final uh, history expert will be uh, Brian Stevenson uh, from Equal Justice Institute. He has spent literally a career examining and defending against efforts to uh, deprive black citizens from their franchise, from full participation in the criminal justice system as jurors and to protect their interests as witnesses and or criminal defendants. So we have an, a remarkable roster of witnesses that we're excited to present. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like there is a top-notch team roster, like you said, assembled for this with a solid case on all fronts. So we've got we've got a long road ahead of us. And I mean, with with all that you laid out that will be um, presented as evidence in this case, I'm sure the state will have have its hands full um, and quite a lot to review and respond to. What is the most ideal um, decision that we could get in this case on account of Hassan Bacope, but also implications for the death penalty in the state of North Carolina in totality? Well, uh, you know, the RJ, RJA is a response to a uh, U.S. Supreme Court case, McCleskey, uh, back in, I think it was 1987. And in McCleskey, the Supreme Court said that the federal courts could not receive statistical evidence, that that was the job of the state courts. Well, this case could be a demonstration for every state that that challenge in McCleskey can be taken up by the states, that they can pass legislation authorizing their courts to consider 
not just anecdotal evidence, not just the testimony of eyewitnesses, but receive scientific evidence, statistical evidence about the role that race plays in the prosecution. So I think this could be an important case, a a seminal case in which uh, the state says we are going to receive fulsome evidence about how the system operates and how it values all of its citizens. And if the system operates in a way that discriminates against the Black community, the Constitution prevents that. We're finally at a point where maybe we begin to do something about that. So if this is a successful challenge, is it possible that Mr. Bacote's sentence gets changed or that he um, is no longer, that he will no longer be on death row? Is that a possibility? It's a very real possibility. You know, when you, we talk about the four cases in Cumberland County, uh, those four people were on death row until they prevailed on the RJ claim. They were released from death row onto general population. They were put back in on death row until the decision in 2020 uh, that sort of uh, ruled that to deprive them of the ruling uh, violated ex post facto law. So Mr. Bacot would likely be in their position. If we prevail, uh, this young man will no longer have the condemnation of death hanging over him. And in Mr. Bacot's case, uh, he actually has, uh, he is still on direct appeal. And so there are actually direct appeal challenges that he can make uh, towards his conviction. From this entire conversation, I've taken away that the stakes are incredibly high, not just for Mr. Bacot, obviously, but for so many others in his position, others that will likely continue to be in his position, um, and for people in states nationwide. Wrapping up here, as we move forward in this mission, what are the most important steps that need to be taken to decrease the use of capital punishment um, in our culture and in this country? Well, recognizing the history in which capital punishment arises, that same history has informed all sorts of extreme sentences. So if you look at North Carolina, for example, there are 130-odd people on death row there are more than 5,000 people serving life without parole sentences. You know, there's a racial impact on those sentences. So, uh, yes, this is an important piece of litigation. Yes, it shines the light on the role that race has played on the administration of the death penalty, and it's a shameful history. But, you know, there's much of that history that informs so much of the criminal punishment system that operates in our country. Uh, the mandatory minimum sentencing, uh, the, the various juvenile justice codes, that the application of which is disparate, racially disparate. So it, it's hopeful that as, as we shine the light on this aspect of, of the criminal punishment system, attention will be focused on the broader problems uh, in our justice system. Absolutely. I think you're completely correct. And I think that 
more broadly, I, when thinking about issues like capital punishment or any issues where we see racial disparities, particularly those concerning the Black community, I am always reminded that we are never as far from or disconnected or removed from our history as some may think that we are. And thank you also for your work on this case and your insight um, on this whole issue. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and I wish you the best in this in this luck forward and we're hoping for for this ideal outcome in this case. Thank you for giving uh, this platform, using this platform for educational purposes. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Vanessa Handy, and Kendall Seesmeyer. This episode was edited by Matt Boynton. Genesis Magpayo is our intern. Until next week, stay strong, everyone.